Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we will make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the Accidental Gods Project, this podcast, the website, and the membership portal that lies behind it. Since then, we've been exploring the lively, living, inspiring intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, from which we can craft a vision of the future that is generative for us all, that amazing and beautiful future that our hearts know is possible. And my guest this week is someone who is already crafting that world. Mary Reynolds' first garden for the Chelsea Flower Show won a gold medal, and since then she's written a book called The Garden Awakening, which is one of those that left me feeling so much that I was reading wild magic from someone who really understands how the world works. More recently, she has set up a website called We Are The Ark, where Ark is spelled with a K and stands for Acts of Restorative Kindness. And she's built a whole worldwide movement of people who are taking their gardens and turning them into everything that we need them to be to restore the wild magic and the beauty of the world. So people of the podcast, with great delight, please welcome Mary Reynolds. So Mary Reynolds, author and visionary and all-round amazing person, <laughs> welcome to Accidental Gods. You wouldn't say that if you met me. <laughs> I'm sure I would, actually. I've read your book. so And everyone who listens to this podcast is going to want to go away and read your book and find your website. So you're out in Ireland at the moment. How has lockdown been for you? Have you had lockdown out there? Yeah, you must have. It's been, it's been um, not much different to real life. because I work from home and it's been a lot slower and it's given me a chance to think and um, I actually really enjoyed it I I, I just don't want to go back to the craziness but I don't know anyone who does to be honest that's the thing I mean I'm sure my steps daughter's husband I don't know what relationship that makes him he teaches at an inner city school in one of the towns near us and his kids came back And they had genuinely done nothing for however long. And they were people who, you know, last February you'd said if you could have six months off school, would you be happy? And they would have been very happy. They were desperate to get back to school because they had nothing else to do, which is, you know, I don't think it's an advocate for our schooling system. It's an advocate for helping people find other ways to live. But it was was quite sobering to realise that because exactly like you, I don't know a single person who wants to go back to the way things were. And and, so. and it doesn't seem like there's vision there to push for a new way from, from above, really. No, well, certainly not with us. I was hoping, because Ireland, obviously you had Leo Varadkar, who used to be a general practitioner. He was an actual medic who understood actual science. Yeah. So I'm guessing that the Irish approach to the whole coronavirus thing was slightly more coherent than the British one. Yeah. But even so, there's, there's this seems to be this rush to get the economy back on track. And 
from my perspective, the economy wasn't working in the first place. Exactly. So why are we trying to get it back on track? But I think there's more realisation of that. Are you finding conversations are more open and more fluid around you? Um, It's kind of a funny one because people are also becoming quite isolated and they're used to it. Mm. And so... um, I don't know. I don't. I don't find I have as much contact with the two-legged species. So um, there's 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 like a lot of fear, and they don't really know what they're afraid of. But there's a lot of fear right. being kind of created. So yes, it's very hard to know. I don't know if it's really we've taken the opportunity that was presented to us. That's I think mm. it was an opportunity, and I'm, and I'm not seeing that it's being grasped by anyone with any level of power. Yeah. Yes. But I'm hoping that in the kind of mycelial undergrowth, there are networks being built and the complexity of the system is being agitated in ways that perhaps we can make those in power redundant quite quickly. That would be good. Because all change, all global movements, all the major changes in the world, changes in the world have come from small ground movements that grassroots movements that really that's the only time anything has actually changed so things like you know the the fridays for future and extinction rebellion and you know all the 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 return to real power of women which was herbal medicine and understanding you know our connections with nature and the opportunities of listening and learning from plants and Yes, you know, all well done. Things, they, 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 they are rising. I mean, over here, the, the, the people went back to growing their own food because they realized yeah. that food security is a massive problem. You know, there's probably only three or four days worth of food available in supermarkets and we shouldn't be dependent upon that, you know. Yeah, and, and 12 minutes worth of toilet rolls, obviously. <laughs> um, yes, but I think, and I think that's a worldwide phenomenon. I think everywhere people started growing their own, which is, Kiven, I don't know how bad your harvest has been, but I just got a quarter of the amount of hay off the hill than I usually get. So I think, you know, other things are happening. But this is a good lead in to all the things that I want to talk about, because your book is one of the most profoundly practical in terms of how we make that spiritual connection to the land of any that I've read. And I'm curious to know a little bit before we explore the detail of what you're saying in the book and what you're saying in your website, We Are the Ark. How did you come to this? Can you tell us a little bit about your growing up and the evolution of your understanding? Um, yeah, well, I grew up on a farm in Wexford. I was the youngest of six children. So we had a lot of freedom because my parents both worked full time as well as being farmers. And, and this was in Ireland. In Ireland, in the southeast of Ireland. And um, I'm 46 now, so it was a good while ago. Um, and things were quite different back then. You know, the the, 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 the chemical usage was much less mm. and there was still life everywhere. Um, and I, I remember that life. I remember the magic was everywhere still. And mm, it's not so much anymore. So I guess I, I kind of, I did whatever you know, any, anyone who's lucky enough to live in, 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 in the way that I do, I, I kind of, I went, 
left home. I, I was supported to go to college. I, you know, I, I'm very lucky in my life, you know, but I, I kind of went and partied for years and basically um, disappeared. And it's only when I moved back to the countryside in, in, in West Wicklow, um, men, kind of, you know, what you could, what we call mountains in Ireland, but they're really only hills. Mm. And I, I, I remembered that even though I had just come out of college and, you know, I was doing really well as a designer um, at gardens, I kind of suddenly realized, God, I, I, what am I doing? Like, this is all awful. And, and nature is, is magic. And, and I, I had forgotten my relationship with, with nature was the only really good one I'd ever had in my life. Mm. And, and so I, I tried to try and fix it. And I kind of, started by going to the Chelsea Flower Show because I couldn't convince anybody to let me design a garden like this. And I, I you know, I'm a bit, what's the word? Um, spontaneous. So when I get to a level of understanding, I jump with it before right. I have worked out, maybe there's a deeper level of understanding. And I keep doing that my whole way along. Like I went to the Chelsea Flower Show. Yeah, I got a gold medal for this particular you know, using magic and intention, and um, yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because because the magic and the intention are really one of the things that I push a lot on this podcast, and it's wonderful to hear someone else actually using it. Okay, well, I suppose even the word magic—it's unfortunate, isn't it? Because it mm. it has become associated with children's stories, or you know, um, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I love. Like, but you know. It's, it's a funny thing, you know, Harry Potter was such a beautiful story, but it, and it did so much good, but in so many ways it did so much damage um, because it disconnected people from the reality of the magic that we're surrounded by. And um, yes. it put it further and further into the depths of, 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 of you know, fantasy. And, yes. and so, and I often, I mean, I remember I heard, or I read that uh, J.K. Rowling actually said once that she didn't believe in magic, and I remember thinking, "Oh my God, the damage is mm. is is so sounds silly." But it, I mean, the power and magic that's available to us is just, is you know, unless you believe in it, it's not it's not there. And I suppose I saw it all the way through my life. I've I've managed to um, to create things in my life very with basically a mix of emotion and belief and intention and so I was trying to figure out how to incorporate all this into my work and so when I did the Chelsea Flower Show for example which was all the way back in 2002 I told all the people I was working with that the reason we're building this garden is to create a, a, a space that reminded people of how important nature was and how we were losing it and we needed to protect it um all the wild places and that was the intention they all built it with so right. that energy got held within the space and the the impact of that was that the person anybody there was a huge queue of people who wanted to look into the garden and talk to me about it and I was standing at the front handing out kind of leaflets because I had 14 sponsors in the end and I was desperately trying to make their input um you know of some benefit to them so I was anyway they all wanted to talk to me and it was really interesting because anybody from England or America or beyond 
they were all in tears, like hmm. they were looking in and they were saying, oh, my God, I had forgotten about these places and how they all had a story from when they were young of a place they remembered that had this magic. And it was a nurturing memory. And they were devastated with grief that all those places were gone. And a lot of the Irish people or Scottish people passing by or Welsh, they would often they kind of go, oh, it's just like a little bit of home because that magic mm. still exists in many places, you know, yeah. but less so since then. It's the, the yeah, energy. Even in that time, because yeah. that's less than 20 years ago. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of a word picture of of what you built in, in that particular exhibit at Chelsea for people who sure. kind of want to build it in their heads? Yeah, well, I guess it was really tiny. It was something like eight by 10 metres and it was basically a, dry stone wall um, with a, a stone moon gate as the entrance and um, within the stone wall the, the earth undulated so there was came down from the inside of the stone walls to the ground level and then there was a circular kind of donut which I call a wrath um, of, of meadow around a central pool um, mm-hmm. And in the pool, there was stepping stones leading to four stone thrones, north, south, east and west. And the idea was I was drawing on old ways. So, you know, our ancestors used to believe the sun sunk into the waters that held power at at nighttime. And, you know, the thrones were places that people sat to be in direct contact with the earth. There's often examples of stone thrones all over the countryside. They kind of would have been instilled with a particular intention themselves and so it, it was a very simple space it was it had a, a it had a certain amount of very old hawthorn trees which we had saved from farm drainage schemes and road widening schemes gosh it had lots what of, happened to them afterwards they ended up all going to i think it's battersea park okay so they live there now um which you know at least they have each other <laughs> yes quite yes because um, it'll be a very different experience to living in ireland yeah yeah they're live anyway so um and then that was it and then it was full of basically what people would call weeds um wild plants and weeds is a good thing in my book you know I love Mm. but it still has that negative connotation so um yeah so it was very simple and it it was filled with symbolism and um sort of feeling um Yes. It wasn't trying to be perfect. There was lots of dead things in there, the way there would be in nature. There's, you know, it's not. It was. It was absolutely, completely different from what had ever been in Chelsea before, and um, and probably since, from the sound of things. Well, no, I think there's been a lot of people doing similar stuff since. Actually, um, oh, okay. it's kind of it kind of started off that whole fashion for want of a better word of, of wildness it, it allowed it to, to to creep into people's gardens and it was quite a game changer in itself you know yeah and how many people did you have on your team and how long did it take to build and there was about 15 of us I think and okay. they were friends and there was a whole romance going on at the same time with me and one of the main builders which was quite an interesting story and um anyway that it was that's not really important sorry <laughs> It would be very interesting because I, I would like to go back a little bit. Actually, let's take this opportunity to go back there because there's two things you talk about in the book. Well, there's quite a lot of things. 
One is the dream that started it out, the crow dream. Do you remember that? Yeah, Can you yeah. tell us about that? And then there's also a story I'd like to get to about setting intent with a picture oh, yeah. the first time you fell in love. I'm really curious because this idea of setting intent with emotion, belief and intention yeah. is a very old one and very well documented. But I'm wondering, did you, were you reading, I don't know, Israel Regardi and people like that, or were you... Did you come to this from the intuition of the land? Let's let's go back to that. Tell us about the dream first. So can you tell us about the crow dream that started everything off? That was when I had just moved back to the countryside from living in Dublin and partying and, you know, being a designer. And studying garden design, though. I, yeah, I did do all that and, and I started a, a business. But anyway, when I moved back to the countryside, it was there very, I don't know how many nights and uh, all through my life I have occasional dreams which are very clear and they're strong messages so this one was basically I was a crow in the dream and I was flying along over really beautiful old landscape um, ancient woods and hills and valleys and rivers and it was pristine it was beautiful anyway I I heard somebody call my name um, and I kind of veered towards it and it was in a woods so I kind of swooped down into the woods and I could see this person sitting on a log it was and it was actually me as a woman um but I was painted blue and I was holding a big stick and um I was you know wearing very sort of tashed clothes um but as I got closer and realized who 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 had been calling my name the Mary on the log basically looked up kind of grinning cheekily and um at me and it was she didn't say anything but it was just it was so obvious just it was like a key and to open the door to a new kind of understanding and so when I I, the crow just kind of froze in midair and 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 I woke up but um it was just I understood then that, that that what am I doing like gardens are just controlling and they're still lives and they they don't include all the other life forms that we that we have stolen this land from, and they don't understand that the, the magic in nature is is missing, and and there are just other rooms, and that and the real deal is nature. The real magic is real beauty. Is the true beauty is nature, wild nature, and that our our pathetic attempts to create beauty based on some psychological image or damage that we may have had fashions uh, mm. is 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 wrong it's wrong and it's selfish and it has to stop <laughs> yes yes so cool have you met that version of yourself since the blue mary was she was she a different age to you do you think you've grown into being her that's two separate questions but i'm pushing them together well i haven't met her in the dream world but i think i've i don't mean to this but i think i've become her. almost become her I'm not quite there yet I'm still like everybody full of damage and full of um full of mistakes and full of limitations and um my my sense of freedom and my ability to be uniquely who I truly am is is still teetering on the edge of falling backwards you know yeah but that's I think that's the nature of life really isn't it knowing that that's the case is the key yeah <laughs> So I guess because then we can match ourselves up to who we could really be exactly. and constantly be stepping towards that. 
Exactly. And and one thing I can say that um, I've learned is that the magic stuff that I started talking about in that book or I started practicing in my life um, was, you know, at the time it was a means to an end or it was for specific reasons, like, like that time in the book where I explained how I used magic to corner and force a relationship to to. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think this is a really interesting concept and, and the outcome of it is a really valuable teaching. And I do want everyone to go and read your book, but it won't hurt them to have the no, occasional story from it. So if you're happy with that, that yeah, would be great. And, and actually, you know, my book is available in libraries, so don't, they don't have to come buy it either, you know. And um, so, I want yeah. to have it, actually, genuinely. <laughs> I did, that doesn't bother me. But um, just that so people can't always afford them, you know. But um, sure. let's see. We, so, yeah, so the story was that I'd fallen in love with this guy, um, and they actually made a movie about it, which is called Dare to be Wild, which is a very lighthearted, sweet film, you know, but it doesn't quite capture um, the, the, the actual story. But it's a sweet film. And, and when I met him, he was the, he was living in um, West Cork, which is in the west of Ireland. And I, I was I totally fell head over heels in love with him and, and, and to a point where it just broke open my heart and. Like I, I was terrified of going back to a place. And of course, I hadn't taken responsibility for my own life at that point. So I was convinced that it was all down to him. Mm. So I needed him to stay with me. So when he went to Ethiopia, I just went into massive fear. And I was afraid he was, because he was going out there to work on um, restoration projects, uh, ecological restoration. And um, I was afraid I'd lose him. And I wanted, I I got it in my head that I couldn't build the garden without him. I, you know, I just, I was a mess. So I, I took a picture that we had taken together on, I don't know, on one of those photo booths and, um, in the days before selfies. Yeah, exactly. And there was a picture of the two of us. So I cut one of them off. You used to get four of them on a strip or something like that. And I cut one of them off and I went to, um, I went out to this local kind of stone circle, which was full of energy and it had this magical old hawthorn tree there as well. And I climbed up into the tree with, this is in the middle of the night, like I was, it was ridiculous. Actually, no, it mightn't have been, it was the middle of the night when I undid it. But um, I can't remember what time of the day it was when I did it. I shoved the um, photograph into the heart of the tree and and I told myself that I asked the tree to take this relationship and bind it together forever mm. and that um and then I believed that 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 would be done and so I kind and of you really wanted it it's that it's that combination of really powerful emotion yeah. belief and intention yeah. all combined together exactly so when I walked away as far as I was concerned it was it was complete a done deal and yeah. then you know we went ahead and um and I went out to Ethiopia just just to be sure to be sure, and I forced him to come back with me. <laughs> and um, anyway, and then typical of me, um, I when I finished building the garden and, and our relationship started to come to come apart because I realized I had put everything into one basket and that I was this wasn't going to work, you know. And, and this was the Chelsea garden, yeah. 
Okay. And so I broke up with him. I ran off with someone else. I mean, it was a, it was such a disaster, but um, I didn't realize how invested he was. And of course, I was only thinking of myself because I was young and selfish and stupid. And he was very upset. So um, now, obviously, he's very happy since. And he doesn't, I mean, he's much happier without me and he has his own family. So this is just a reference to a long time ago. But he, he, I realized that he was desperately upset and I had broken his heart and he wasn't recovering. And I panicked one night and I realized when I remembered what I had done. So I, I, I raced across the fields to this Hawthorne tree and I undid it. I took out the picture and I undid it. And, um, you actually tore the picture up. I think, yeah, I tore it up. And, um, I suppose I was so full of horror at my own actions at that point that there was plenty of emotion to go along with that, you know, and I walked away knowing that he'd be okay now. And it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because you have to really believe that the stuff you've just done is going to happen because otherwise it won't. It's, it's, it's a, it's a funny kind of a skill. Yes. And, um, and we can all learn it and it's not, it doesn't belong to one particular person. This is a power that every single person has. And that's something I've learned over the years that, you know, we are all incredibly powerful, but we've, we've been taught that we're not. And, and that final key of walking away from an intent, believing that it's now already in place is almost impossible for people to actually do. And it takes a lot of practice, but it's, but it's, there's so much support there if you ask for it um well for me it's from plants for other people it's from animals other people it's they don't need it they just they just have themselves um yeah i think for most people there is something out in what david abrams calls the more than human world something there that helps even if it's it's the planet herself or itself what really interests me on this is the intent and the integrity, because we spend quite a lot of time in the shamanic dreaming group that I work with, really focusing on integrity because because we know that you can harness your intent to things that are not necessarily going to be for everybody's best and highest good. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm really, really interested that you you did this with this person who presumably at that point didn't know. I guess by now he's read the book and he yeah. does. Yeah. Um, but the doing of it and the undoing it were yours entirely. And I'm guessing that your intentions now, you wouldn't do that again, no, I'm thinking. God, no. And, and that's what I say in the book. Be careful what you wish for, yeah. you know. Yeah. Be very careful that it's, like you say, integrity is the, is the most important word, which I, may, which I should have used. Actually, it's a great word because that's what you need to hold is integrity. And that, yeah. you know, be aware that if you're asking for something to happen, Always add in the provisio that if it's meant to be, if it's for my higher good, whatever way you want to put it, whatever you believe in, just make sure you're not forcing something, which is yeah. right, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's hard because our egos get in the way and tell us that this is for the best and highest good of everybody, when in fact, yeah. sometimes it's not. <laughs> it's our fear speaking. In the, I want the world to carry on being exactly as it was because... That's the way it goes. And I think I sometimes look at Donald Trump and think he's a really good example of what happens when somebody with, with, I would venture to suggest, not necessarily the integrity that I would want, um, has the ability, never, nonetheless, to hold a very clear and strong intent. Yeah, funny. Um, 
And I'm still curious as to, because this is something that there are areas of life where this combination of emotion, belief and intention are quite deeply written about. Um, and, and I'm wondering, did you learn this innately from your experiences with the land? Because you talk a lot about your experiences with the land in the book. Or were you exploring the nature of intent as a kind of sideline? Um, I'm not sure because um, I know that I have imagined things in my life and they've come come to pass and hmm. um, and then other times I've uh, I've tried to imagine things that I want to come to pass and they haven't so <laughs> I don't I, I, I only started to kind of grasp it I remember I was reading a book when I was doing the Chelsea Flower Show and I was reading a book called The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success hmm. and in it um, it said you know, that you, if you write something down and you repeat it every day until you actually believe it's happened, then it will happen. Mm. So I did that with that. I wrote down, thank you for my full sponsorship and my gold medal at the Chelsea Flower Show. And that's kind of all I did to make that happen. And, wow. Um, well, then you also built an amazing garden, Mary. I think that is also a, an integral part of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but the you know, coming up with all that money for someone who really had no connections or or you know, abilities in that world was, um, was, was pure magic. There was no way around it other than it was pure magic, the way it happened. Mm. Yeah. So, and lots of those things have happened throughout my life. And then, you know, and, and it's like, it's like the opposite of worrying, you know? So, um, I've watched, I watched my mother worry herself into, um, mm. dementia, you know, and, and, you know, worrying is the opposite of, believe yes. in magic and tension and prayer or whatever. Well, it's also creating a future with real emotion yeah. and intent and belief, but it isn't the one that we want. I, I have a feeling that that's what we're doing in the world at the moment, but we have the capacity to, if we can feel our way into how would the world be if we got it right and really feel it as if it happened exactly as you said you have to yes. be in the place where it's happened and actually that's so important yeah. and, and I'm so glad you said that because sometimes I think I'm the only person thinking that so that is just wonderful to hear you say that because I actually think there's something incredibly powerful I I often have this image of, of all of us in our tribe you know and I mm. think I do feel like those of us who are on this kind of individual path, you know, who stepped out of the mists of, of, of craziness that we were living in, um, are kind of a tribe in some way. And yeah. I think I often yes. imagine if there was enough of us sat quietly and went in yes. and imagined the beautiful world, like Rob Hopkins wrote that beautiful book, that book. book yes. right? From what is to what is. Yeah. And like, so we need those images of, of beauty and health and healing and and potential um because otherwise we're just all focused on the edge of the cliff which we're pounding towards as like all of us are and we keep eating that image with news and you know um all the articles and it's 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 terrifying because nobody's presenting in 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 an, in a really kind of mass media way, nobody is presenting an alternative image for the no, future. I, I am. I got together with uh, two friends, one of whom is a director on The Matrix, and we are writing 
a 10-season television program of 10, minimum 10 episodes per season. So it, you know, it's a long-term project, but taking us from where we are to a place we could be that would be that flourishing place. Oh, well done. I'm not saying it's the only one, but because there is no roadmap otherwise. That's exactly. Nobody has a clue. We've got plenty of roadmaps of how it could be really bad. And there is no roadmap for how it could be good. So, so yes, sorry, this is really a, an aside. But, so glad you're um, doing that. <laughs> yeah, and we just need sponsorship. So I am I am working on, kind of like you are, that we just need people who really get it, okay. who are prepared well, to fund what it. What about crowdfunding? Have you looked at that? Um, yes, and we are contemplating that. Yeah, because um, it's, enough it's, of us that don't know we need it, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, that would be great. Yeah. Television is a very powerful medium, isn't it? It's, 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 I think it's our equivalent now of what sitting around the fire in the roundhouse was 2,000 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it just, you know, it's a way of reaching very large numbers of people that are otherwise unreachable, particularly now that nobody's going to be sitting in a cinema watching a film anymore. Yeah. Um, but, you know, binge watching Netflix is what we do instead of sitting around the fire telling each other stories of the heroes, you know, Cuchel and, and anything else. It's, <laughs> it's how we get there. Exactly. So, but but also the podcast and you're talking to people. I am so in love with your book because you talk about intent and the ways that we can connect it to the land. I was particularly struck, you're talking about biodynamics and ways of increasing the soil biome as a way of increasing the whole biome. And this is one of my big things. I got into regenerative agriculture, but I didn't know about the yarrow and the stag liver. Oh. So just... Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about gardens and, and planning and all of the things, but just tell us about the yarrow and the stag liver. Do you remember that bit? I, I do remember that bit, but I mean, I suppose in a way I'm really sorry I put that in because I, I didn't word it very well. And, and people who are using biodynamic practices really got upset by it because oh, do they? They, they thought oh. I was kind of poo-pooing biodynamic. No. It really wasn't my intent at all. And, and that's not how it came across to me. Yeah, I know. I was trying to that you know all of these things that we do you know with um you know like like you know if somebody hands you a stone and tells you that it's going to cure your headache and you believe it that then mm. it, it's done its job you know i mean it's it's all about convincing our own adult minds mm. that something will happen because actually the power all comes from within us to make these yes. things happen it, it's not from any of those other things but you know the, you know Eye of Newton, Tail of Frog, or whatever it is, <laughs> Dragon. You know, all of those things were done in order to trick ourselves into believing that something yes. happened because we we get in our own way so quickly and so easily. We like I do it every day. I get in my way every day. How do you get out of your way, though, Mary? Because that's the I, all of us listening. We all know how easy it is to get in our own way, but then some people have tried and tested pathways for getting out of their own way. And I'm thinking you are one of those people. You've written books, you've created amazing gardens, you set up the website We Are The Ark, which we're going to talk about shortly. So you must have also ways of getting out of your own way. I don't every day, Amanda. I I, I struggle a lot and it's, it's, it's almost like the more I struggle, the harder it can get some days. So what I do find the only way out of it is even when I'm panicking or I'm riddled with anxiety or whatever it is, I focus on what is in this particular room or in this field or in this moment that I have to be grateful for. And I force right. myself to look at the 
things that I'm grateful for, even if I can't breathe at that particular point. Right. And it's just, it's like, it's like digging a new channel in your brain because the old mm. ones are so easy to slide down. Um, yes. And we need to constantly work very, very hard to maintain new channels <laughs> that don't, that don't, that don't remove our power or. Yes. Yes. I, it's like, I don't know. I don't know where all this is going to bring us, but I know that we, we have the power to change everything instantly. If, if we just believe we do. And yeah. I really want to get myself into a place where I can just sit in a room and imagine, <laughs> you know, <laughs> imagine I just, and I think if lots of us were doing that, I think, yes. I think it would change everything. I just, I just yes. like you say, we yes. need a roadmap to imagine so that we're all imagining the same thing because that will, yeah. that will change everything. And I think for me, the thing that came for me out of lockdown, I went and I live on the side of a hill and I go up the hill and I ask the hill, what do you want to me? Or I ask the world. And what came at that point was that I needed to record a meditation for people to do that does exactly what you said. And oh. the key was um, that we need to feel our way into a future that feels like the one that we'd really want. We don't necessarily need to, in the beginning, know what it looks like. And we definitely don't have to think about how we're getting there because that way we sidetrack ourselves with all of the yes buts. And so I recorded that and then I began doing it. And I found, even now, I, I sat with the ponies yesterday for about an hour and a half and even now, the bits of me that get in the way going, yeah, but that can't happen. Or yes, but that's too complicated. Or yes, but everybody's pulling the other way are huge. And it takes a lot of time and it takes the belief that it's worthwhile and that it will work to get to that place inside that kind of kernel where, okay, yes, I can I can actually feel this place of the future where it's okay. Yeah. And I know what it feels like and I can sit there and from that place, my sense of who I am really shifts. And I think this brings me back to the, your dream of you as the blue woman. And I'm really interested in the blue and what kind of blue it was and why it was blue and is that the version of Mary that is living in this future that we can build if we can just connect with it. <laughs> That's lovely. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. And do you think, I, I don't know, what sort of blue was it? We're going in a bit of a circle. No, yeah, was, people in the podcast get used to this. So it's okay. <laughs> it, how would you, I don't know, how, I'm not good at types of blue. It was like. A, but was it a kind of woad blue? Yeah, was it that sort of blue? Kind of, of a color. That kind of a color. Yeah. It, was, it was, it was like, yeah. sorry, this is going to be really, really pathetic. But do you remember on Braveheart? So it was some yes, paint. the paint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was that color. That blue. So, yeah. yeah. yeah interesting. That and you know, the thing about woad is it doesn't make that color often. Okay. I, I, when I was writing the Boudicca books, I had to really look into it. And there's some amazing things about woad. And if you mix it with egg white, I think. Yeah. It takes about 90 seconds for the color to begin to develop. Yeah. So I'm imagining you're in a ceremony 2000 years ago and the person that you respect most in the world paints these designs on you and you can't see anything. And then you go out in the light and gradually this color oh, arrives. Oh, cool. Wow. And how amazing that would be. But the really interesting thing is that if you mix the woad with bear fat or goose fat, or I think tallow mm -hmm. which is sheep fat mm -hmm. it comes out as exactly the same color as armies of the world use in their dawn and dusk camouflage oh wow and and a spear or a blade will slide off unless it's really directly 
That's and it has antibacterial properties. So I think, I don't think they were painting themselves blue, our ancestors. I think they were covering themselves in this amazing dawn dusk mist coloured because Caesar says they came out of the mists and we couldn't see them. Wow, that's amazing. And he says they were covered they were covered in sky-coloured paint. They didn't have a word for blue. Oh. In Latin it was sky-coloured. Yes, and they were here at the equinox and I think, you know, guys, these the skies at the equinox around here are not blue. The equinoxial storms are very grey. And so I think they were grey not blue. But but even so, I think that blue for us is a very iconic yeah. colour of ancientness and wisdom and connectedness. Wow, that's wonderful. I didn't know that. So there's so much I want to talk about, Mary. Let's go back to um, the thing about the biodynamics I think is interesting and I'm really sad if biodynamic people were offended because I think it's really inspiring because it's it's not just intent. It's also you're bringing in yarrow, which is this extraordinary plant. You're bringing in the power and the energy of the stag and then, as I understood it, you stuff the yarrow into the stag's liver somehow. I don't quite understand. Then you hang it up and then you bury it or the other way around. And I'm thinking you then, with that, are creating the most amazing bacterial colonies, cultures, that you can then sow on the land as a way of restoring a really diverse biome. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's what they're doing. Um, but often... I mean, it wasn't it wasn't my recipe that I was explaining. It was um, I was referring to one that's a standard practice in biodynamic agriculture. Um, yeah. So, so it's tested. They've tested, tested this and, and it works. And this works, yes. And um, yeah, and then I have a very simple method of um, restoring that microbiome in your land by going to an old growth woodland near you and taking a handful of the soil and um, mixing it into a large container of water, um, maybe. Yeah. With and it needs to be spring water or rain water, so yeah. it's not full of chlorine that will kill everything off. Exactly. And yes. and maybe put in some molasses to feed the bacteria and uh, the fungi or whatever it is that needs feeding and just keep stirring with the intention of what it is you want you want to, to restore the health of the land of with, and, and just stir it like... In biodynamics, they stir things into vortexes because it allows the oxygen mm. to reach down into de- depths of the body of water, and then they go in right. the opposite direction. Right. But I also feel once you're using your your thoughts or your words to tell the water what your intention is, it'll hold that for you as well. And then I tell people to stop before they get distracted and bored because then yeah. that's enough. And then you don't want to put those... And you don't want distraction and boredom in the water. Yeah. You want your clear intent. And then you don't leave it for longer than um, 48 hours and not shorter than 24 because the, they start to eat each other, the microorganisms at that point. Oh, okay. So you spray it then on the land and it restores... Um, it's it's a very cheap and cheerful method of of, of kicking off um, a, a, the microbiome ecosystem, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, and the, the thing I was talking about with the biodynamics is that they they often use these methods, and they and and I didn't understand biodynamics enough. Again, it's another example of my spontaneous dives into things when I'm not 
quite up to speed, you know, um, because I get so bloody enthusiastic and I'm so lazy a lot of the time. You know, I just like, I, oh, my God, I've, I figured it out. And then I go and tell people and then I figure something else out. And then I go, oh, yeah, but, but it feels like it in the book. I read that. And thought, oh, wow, that sounds really exciting. Let's do that. <laughs> so don't do yourself down. You know, And then if it opens a door to biodynamics for people. That's great. Oh, so yeah, having, you know, the book is now it was published in 2016. I'm guessing mm-hmm. it was written earlier than that because publishing cycles are what they are. Yeah. And now so. What have you learned since about biodynamics that if you were to update the book, you would put in? I I learned that I know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But I still... um, Okay. (laughs) But I learn that every day, you know, I learn every day I learn that I know nothing, you know, and um, I suppose what I would do would be if I was going to update the book, I would I would still hold to the fact that biodynamics are similar to um, any of those methods which help us believe that something will happen because um, it helps us get out of our own way, you know, hmm. um, so that we can believe it's happened. And once we can steadfastly believe that something is now done, it's done. And yeah, I, look, it's like I, I, I don't read books about this stuff, so I'm sure that actually written really well about it but I I just have a very simplistic and kind of very Irish way of looking at it maybe like it's just it's just my understanding of plants and uh, and now it's developed into I didn't realize that I had this really strong connection with animals and creatures and I I've been given that indication the whole way along. Um, that yeah, you had a crow dream right at the start, but hey. Yeah. <laughs> but I never really grasped it until one day I was sitting at my desk, um, two years ago now, um, looking down over my um, my garden, and a fox ran past in the middle of winter, in the middle of the morning, and my kids were going to school, and I and two hares were chasing the fox, which was very unusual, and a little while later oh. I kept watching and I saw a hedgehog or two running along underneath the hedge in the same direction mm. and they're supposed to be asleep and nocturnal so yes I got out and I went in the direction they were coming from and across the road at the end of my lane there was this incredible beautiful thicket of a field which was impenetrable full of wild plants and shrubs and trees and somebody had got planning permission to build a house at the top of the field and they'd gone in with a digger and they'd cleared the whole thing out to make a garden without any thought for the creatures that were sharing the land with. And I stood there in absolute horror and realized I have done this myself so many times. And that was kind of the end of my, um, end of one world and beginning of another. And um, I realized that all these creatures have nowhere left to go Farming has become toxic in so many ways and habitats are removed to within an inch of their lives to make way for more chemically laden crops and um, there's nowhere safe for them and the only places they have are gardens and that they don't contain all the connections that we need, all the wild plants, that there's a whole very intricate web called the food web that Mm. the basis of which is our native plants and our gardens are filled with things that are totally not native and so the whole food web is collapsing and the only places they've left are these tiny little pockets of wildness and we keep removing them without considering who's living there and that that broke my heart and I went home and 
I started writing another book and then I realized that was going to take too long. So I set up mm. a website with my friends, Claire and Jen and Joel and Ruth, this fabulous illustrator who did the book with me, Ruth Evans. She, right. she did lots of illustrations and none of us wanted to make any money out of it. Just all of us are very passionate about what we're doing. And so we started it. We called We, we Are The Ark and I'm I asking people to to build an ark in their land to give as much of it as they can back to nature um acts of restorative kindness to the earth that's what it is and very simple to put up a sign to give it at least half of your garden back if you can and it's really cute because I do ask people to grow their own food as very much important part of it because we need to step outside the system that's killing everything which is agriculture and horticulture and 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 you know fishing industrial fishing is a bloody disaster. Yes. So in order to really make a difference we need to step outside the system and the only way to do that is to grow your own food or to support local organic box schemes and farmers yeah. that are actually regenerative and organic and um otherwise we're not doing enough so um it's very simple they put up a sign saying this is an arc and the website is written underneath that people make their own signs we're not selling anything um Mm. and i will put a link in the show notes so people can find you and there it's become this global movement which is 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 suddenly now do you have a garden or do you have an arc and it's it's so simple and people have taken ownership of it and it's all over the world and it's just wonderful gives people hope yes. you know yes and the fact that it is it is global and people are posting things on facebook and showing pictures on instagram um and there's there's a guy in the states who a guy called Doug Tallamy, who's a he's insect brilliant. specialist brilliant. he's he's set up the grown homegrown national park and i was listening to a podcast the other day with someone who said they they'd done this they, and, and in their kind of green desert bit of Indiana. And the neighbours were coming to ask, what are you doing? And then going, how do I do this? And this is the way we create revolutions because this is something visible mm-hmm. and practical. And as you said near the beginning with your garden at Chelsea, people weep to remember their childhoods. Mm. And I, we're finding over here hedgehogs are almost extinct and and people remember that, and it's cutting across the political boundaries a bit of, wouldn't it be nice if we could just make it okay for the hedgehogs? And that just means spraying a bit less, and as you said, eating differently, and and stop your garden being a green desert. It's really interesting. So, so yes, people, on the website, there's all kinds of ideas of what you can do. And, yeah. and just stop mowing the lawn is the first, isn't it, as far as I can tell. That's, you know... Well, if if you have a, a diverse lawn, sometimes people have like green desert lawns, which are like just one species of grass. And okay. um, then they actually kind of have to either scrape it off and, and sow what we call an arc meadow, which is locally collected weed seeds or, okay. um, or else a wildfire meadow or else um, just even to put patches of um, native plant kind of islands within that mm. lawn and allow them to spread out from there because the, the, the kind of non-native grasses are really competitive and they won't allow things to compete with them so okay <laughs> anyway so yeah there's a lot involved but and yet it's so simple it, it's and it's certain things that people just don't understand is that like like all this lighting that we have is killing all, yes, all the Yes, that was something I had no idea of. So tell us about the lighting, because that's really interesting. And also something people can just do today. 
yeah, I didn't know either, Amanda. It's like, you think I'd have known, but I didn't know um, that the blue and white toned LED lights are blinding all the nighttime pollinators, and they're they're cutting um, hmm. a, a massive amount of strands of the food web because now bats don't have any food because the moths are disappearing. Um, right. They're they they like there's so many nighttime pollinators which are extremely important for pollination but also as a food source for so many creatures at night and without them the ecosystem collapses so i mean when it collapses we we go too you know Mm. um and and nature in ireland nature has already collapsed we're looking at the remnants of nature you know um it's mostly just the sheep ranch now and um and that's just really sad you know so we do have to um, change everything. So you can change your bulbs in your garden back to an amber tone, um, yeah. or you can put filters. Or just take them out. Take them switch out. them off. Switch them off so that we have darkness. That, and if you have to have a light, do that thing where it comes on when when there's a motion in case you need it yeah. when you come home to get out of your car or something. If you have, if you are lucky to have a home in a car, you know. Um, yeah. But there's, yeah, it's simple stuff, and you know start sharing your seeds with your neighbors, start sharing your produce. People are buying up land to create communal arcs and, hmm. you know, and it's all done through other people. Cause look, I, I, I'm, I get stressed way too easily and I can only take on so much. So, and I didn't want anyone to think that they couldn't own it, that this is a yeah. movement, not, 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 not a corporate structure in any way. And, um, so, yeah. yeah, and it's beautiful, and you can put your, you can join the map, and you can, you know, there's all sorts of empowering things here. Yeah, to let people know there where, is. Even if I mean, look, most people don't want to put their arcs on the map because of food security issues, which I totally understand. Right. So, but even with that, like, there's right. nine thousand acres on the map as it is, and every tiny window box full of weeds is important. Do you know, every, yeah. that's that's important, and and you get to see all these creatures come to visit you in your window box if you only live in an apartment. Yes. You know, and it's just magical. You're sharing this earth then with those little creatures, and it gives people hope and inspiration. And even if they've only given a patch of their garden back to nature, when they see what comes to live there, they very very quickly give the rest of it back. Right. Yes. And, and yes. that's 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 the best thing about it. You know, they spend their life suddenly with. You know, those cameras with, you know, you can see things at nighttime or the right, nest right. cameras. Yeah. And suddenly people's lives have meaning again because of all the creatures in this whole earth, we're the only ones that don't have a role in that food web. Only one. Yeah. And our yeah. only job here is to look after the rest of it. That's, we only get to be here if we look after it. So we're the guardians, right? If we weren't, well, we are now. And and the point is that if we don't step up and remember who we are, then we're screwed. And and I think there's enough of us who have woken up to to shift it. It only takes three point one four percent of a whole population to shift in consciousness before the whole thing shifts instantly. Now that's not a huge amount. We can do that. Yeah, you know? we can do that. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I didn't know it was three point one four. That's really interesting because that's the first three digits of pi. There has to be something in that. Yeah. That's that's my inner mathematical geek. Yeah. And just, I think we're heading towards, we're going to have to stop soon, but I wanted you to talk a bit about the, the hedgehog pathways oh, yeah. that okay. we need to make, because I think, again, that's something that it's obvious once you've heard it, but it's not necessarily obvious otherwise. 
Do you mean between people's spaces? Yes, yes. Well, just, just that, like, if you have a wall around your garden, creatures can't... Or a fence, or a dog-proof fence, even. Exactly. Um, so it's very simple. All you need to do is, is, is like, you know, don't go doing anything dodgy structurally. You know, find someone who knows <laughs> what they're doing. Um, or replace your walls with um, with living walls, which are hedges, you know. and mm. but, but cut a hole in the base of your fence, Um are in, in, are in your wall if you can find someone who will help you do that without collapsing on top of you. Um, I can hear you being very careful there. <laughs> yes. Do not hit your wall with a sledgehammer. Don't yeah. do this episode, but make a gap, yeah, make a gap for the hedgehogs to come through. It's not just the hedgehogs. There's, there's so many creatures that need access because like hedgehogs, I think they have something like a 10-acre um, territory, territory. Territory. Thank you. Right. And, um, and so, you know, if they only have access to one garden they're screwed they won't survive they'll starve right. and right. also if that garden is full of you know ornamental plants that have no relationship yeah. have not evolved alongside the, the local food web then they won't yeah. have any creatures to and, eat and flooded with blue blue white light that's blinding everything so it all dies off all these things that we don't know and then if the soil isn't alive enough it doesn't have the worms and there's nothing for them to eat then we're screwed. So, so the, the wonderful thing about it is how quickly it was, it, it recovers. So, right. for example, my friends Claire and Joe, they I didn't have my own land until now, um, the, the last few years. So when when I was writing the book, we felt we you know I've been doing it for other people, but I need to do it for us, you know. So we built our biggest mm. forest garden there, one of the plans right. of the book, and um, and then la- then two years ago, Claire and Joe were already on this path before me and they they I they they agreed to turn the rest of it into an arc but they were already doing it really because they'd become so obsessed with the life that had come back even with the forest garden and that's what happened so we built a pond and we put in loads of local tree cuttings and shrubs and we allowed the wildflowers to come true into because there's, there's like 5,000 weed seeds in every square foot of soil. They just need a 30th of a second's worth of light to be activated. So it's very simple. They're all there unless it's a very damaged piece of land and then you do need to give it more support. But that's individual kind of situations. But the point is from a four-acre horse paddock, which had nothing but, mm. you know, short grass and horses. Now, yeah. um, a couple of years later, they have... Um, Owls and peregrine falcons passing through, and wow. you know shrews and hedgehogs and badgers and every type of insect life, every type of bird life you can imagine. It is hopping. And and a forest garden from which they are feeding themselves. But the problem with the forest garden with feeding themselves is that the birds are eating everything because there's so uh. many of them. So they they get a lot of food out of it, but mostly they've kind of given it to given it to the birds because okay. there's just so many of them, and they love all those creatures. Um, right. But they get a lot of fruit out of it, and you know perennial vegetables and stuff. But they also have their polytunnels, which we need in Ireland really to survive mm. a, a okay. sustainable system. You know. All righty, but that's sounding good because then you've got maximum amount of biodiversity on your land, and then and then you can feed yourself in the polytunnel as well. Yeah, okay. yeah. you kind of need to really, and it does. Like Martin Martin Crawford has a fabulous forest garden I in Devon. There. Devon, okay, yes. but yes. Um, and it did take a long time. It takes a long. Oh, no, it's time. much Wenlock. Uh-huh. I think his original one is is near here. It's much Wenlock, and then he went down to Darting. Ah, anyway, okay. Yes, it takes a while for those to become to get to a point where they are you know, ready to feed you, you know, as well as all the other creatures that are going to race back there 
because yeah. they're desperate to be satisfied. <laughs> yes, and maybe we need to look at regenerative farming, which which draws in carbon into the soil and builds biodiversity and holds water. Because yeah. last last week we had the most astonishing storms, and someone had just ploughed a field in the neighbouring village, and basically the soil of that field ended up on the road, oh, and is gone now. And and I mentioned to a local farmer's daughter that you know maybe planting some trees would be good, and she folded her arms and said, "No, I don't think you'll find that's good because the trees take take the water from the the soil and that the grass needs." I was like, "Yeah, but the, now there's no soil because there were no trees." Um, um, so we need to be having slightly different conversations, and and I'm very bad because I obviously trigger everybody's telegraph reading instincts somehow, but. If we can get the regenerative agriculture going and get people off the industrial agriculture, then we can also have the four-acre former paddocks that become wildlife havens. That would be fine. I read something, or I heard something a while ago, uh, a guy called David Johnson, who's in University of New Mexico, and he did a a kind of calculation that if 40% of the world's surface area that's given over to industrial agriculture, chemical agriculture, were given instead to regenerative agriculture, the sort that builds the soil, builds biodiversity, holds water, we would be at pre-industrial levels of carbon dioxide within 10 years. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And and I think that's that's a no-brainer. It's not hard. You get better, you get better, more nutritious food. I don't know if you've listened to any of the stuff on glyphosate, but it's genuinely terrifying how terrifying. utterly damaging that is to all of us. So you get food that isn't killing you or your kids. We get massive increases in soil biodiversity, plant biodiversity, the whole of the food web, and it draws in carbon. So the only thing that happens is that Monsanto goes bust. I think that's you know. This is a win all round as far as I'm concerned. And I do not understand why we're not doing it, other than the fact that Monsanto would go bust and they don't want it. But yeah. you know, it's it's, it's worth working for. Politicians have lobbied have been are lobbied by these very wealthy corporations and that's why. But um, even wealthy corporations are made up of individuals who I bet if we had brought them to your garden in Chelsea would have wept. Yeah, and I I always say that to people that even in 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 America, say where they have all those really weird um what are they called community kind of police on 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 housing, it's like a, a a collection of the people who live there, and they have massive power, and you have to have nothing but grass in your front lawn. You have oh, really. To have, you have to have oh. a particular type of bird box. You have to have, you're not allowed oh my gosh. to do anything other than This is the land of the free. This is astonishing. This is a land where libertarianism grows and thrives. This is the main problem in America because people are not allowed to do anything other than what the local, oh, I can't, housing association or whatever it's called, right. deem, because they get sued. They actually get sued. Wow. So, they so you need to take over the local housing association then, well, or whatever it is. No, that there will be people within there that have kids that have woken up. Yeah. There will, okay. like, that, yes. like you're saying, all these people have children. Well, if not all of them, some of them will have children. And <laughs> enough have, of them have enough kids. Of them, exactly. And the kids or, get it. Our sisters are, you yeah. know, even themselves, there will be people who will come to a crisis point in their lives, like we all do if we don't cop on. And they'll either wake up and see what's going wrong, like we have, or they'll go back and and get even worse, you know, to cover it all up. But but there are going to be enough people to wake up. I'm sure there are. And and it is a it is a crisis point. It has been a crisis point for a long time. 
But look, I mean, it's kind of an exciting time to to be alive. I mean, yes, what I'm not afraid of dying. So I, so you know, it, it's just kind of strange watching it all happen. Um, but it would just be nice not to take everything else with us. That's it. Just, what are we doing? Where's our kindness? Where's our compassion for for life on this earth? For people? For creatures? So just it's not okay. So yeah. We need to so it. just before we end, I want to end on a slightly more up note. Yeah. Um, and I'm remembering in the book an experience that you wrote about when you were a child and you went into the field and you couldn't find your way out. And it seems to me that we're, we've been talking about magic all the way through and that there is the the magic that is the focused intent of a mind that knows what it wants with clear integrity. But also there is just the magic of the land. Can you tell us that story? Do you remember that? Do you, do you mean the story when I wandered into a field? Yes, oh, exactly. That one. Um, that when I was a little girl, I, I, I don't remember what age I was. I, I, it was like somewhere between five and seven. Just only, um, I walked off up to the top of the farm because I, you know, People were, nobody knew where you went or where you were all day. They didn't, yeah. they just, you just came back for food and that was it. And and I walked into this tiny little field, which um, was really heavily kind of hedged with gorse and brambles and hawthorns and elders and all that around the outside. And there was a, about a four meter gap where my dad would have driven the tractor into it, a battered mm-hmm. old tractor. And Anyway, I remember wandering into it. It was May, and I do remember that because I remember the smell of the hawthorns, which has yes. always been very strong, and memories and smells are very strong. And um, or yeah, you know what I mean. And anyway, I walked into the field, and I remember I had a very strong feeling that there was something behind me. When I turned around, the gap which I just walked through, which was four meters wide, was gone. Mm. Um, it had completely closed, and it was just the hedge. It was just more hedge and trees and plants, and like got really scared because that's very scary for anyone you know especially a young child yeah I couldn't understand what had just happened and I couldn't find my way out of the field I I wandered around for ages crying and shouting but sure so far up nobody could hear me and eventually I got distracted by the butterflies and I sat in the middle of the field and um and then I calmed down and then I remember feeling like I was being watched and I looked up and I realized that the spirits that were watching me as such were the plants themselves and that they were leaning towards me, hoping that I would recognize them. And I recognized that they all had their own personalities, same as people, the different spirits, different personalities. Some of them were grumpy and some of them were happy and some of them were really bright and some of them were kind of suspicious <laughs> and you know they all had their own feeling and you know I just didn't understand it like it at the time I mean it was only when I was writing the book that I had to really think about it and I realized that these plants were part of my family and I was part of theirs because mm-hmm. the earth is like a huge big beating heart and when we started looking at her in terms of ownership, rather in terms of guardianship, we shattered that heart into millions of tiny pieces and we keep breaking it up. And so the the, the bodies of land that we work with are all unique individuals, individualized like we are. And and they contain, you know, the boundaries of that those pieces of land that, that, that they're part of our family, that 
whatever is within it. And we often have to walk the boundaries and let the piece of land know which part we're working with to hold the boundaries, which reflects in our own lives. But Thank you. that's what happened. Yes. But yeah. you did eventually get out. That was the interesting thing. Well, one of yes, the many interesting things. Somebody, a neighbour's uh, daughter, an older girl, she uh, I don't know whether she heard me or she, but she shouted over the ditch. She must have seen me because she came across a couple of fields to see me. And um, when I looked around, then the gap was back and I just wandered home. But of course, I didn't tell anyone about it. I I did tell my dad when I was 18, um, I remember. And I remember he was quite shocked because the same thing had happened to his granddad in that field um, yeah. a long time ago. But yeah, so there you go. Which is the amazing thing about ancestral land. Yeah. And the, the the land binds to the families. Totally, yeah. And that's so easy to lose. Yeah, it is. It is. So, yeah, it's a funny. But answer. also to find again and to recreate. To recreate, even with a tiny patch, if you're lucky enough to have one, you can really, you can really create a very strong relationship with your land, which is powerful because the land attracts in the same type of person that the land itself is like what so like mm. with different types of healing that are required sorry that's I hate that word but just I mean say my land which I have now is um you know it it's starting to trust me but for a long time I could tell it was like yeah whatever it wouldn't even look at me it wouldn't even connect with me it's like it just was expecting me to abandon how it. long has it taken I said about three four Five years, five years. Okay, and you, but you've been using real intent to connect with it in those five years. I, I have, but it took a lot of work. But sure, I'm like that. I mean, I'm I, I'm a disaster. I, I kind of have a major patterns of abandonment and um, rejection, and it's all my fault, you know. But anyway, as I'm working on the land to fix that, it's fixed it in myself. That's the wonderful right. thing, and that's the opportunity that land presents to us, and that's what my book is about, really. Yes. Yes. And if people don't own land, as you said, we can form community groups. Yeah. If every bit of land that came for sale was bought by community groups instead of by you know, Russian oligarchs and big industrial farmers, we would transform the landscape. Totally. And it is possible. Yeah. And create corridors and yeah. kind of a patchwork quilt of hope, really, which is what we need, you know. Oh, I love that. That can be the title of the podcast. <laughs> quilt of hope. Yes. Wonderful. So I think we're going to have to close. Is there anything that you'd like to say to people listening in closing? I think A Patchwork Quilt of Hope is a very good ending, but if there's anything else that you felt you wanted to say, now is the time. Uh, just don't ever think that that um, anybody else knows more than you. You know, just trust yourself. And, you know, every, everyone is learning. Um, and just just to believe in yourself if you can. And I know it's hard because some people have very difficult lives, but, you know, if you can ask your, if you do have a garden, you could, um, you can get a lot of support there and a lot of, a lot of joy. And the ARC movement brings a lot yes. of belonging and hope with it. So, yes, yeah, it's so simple. You don't have to do too much. So jump on board. <laughs> Magic. Yes, jump on board. And I will link to the ARC and to the Facebook group and, there's a community there, people, and it's very well worth joining. Yeah, it's lovely. So thank you so much. That was that was just actually magical in its truest sense. I am so glad we were able to connect. Thank <laughs> Me you. Me too. Thanks, Amanda. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Mary for the raw honesty of her life. 
and for making the magic happen across the world in the ways she so clearly does. I will put links to the ARC, to her own website, and to her book in the show notes. Please do go and follow those up. And we will be back next week with another conversation. If you have any ideas of people you would like to hear on the podcast, do get in touch. You will get to me at Manda, that's Manda with an M, M A N D A, at accidentalgods.life. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to come and visit us, we're at accidentalgods.life on the web. You'll find the show notes there, all of the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the resources section, and access to the Accidental Gods membership program, which is a structured training designed to bring the kind of magic that we were talking about into everybody's lives, to give you step-by-step instructions of how to connect with the world that needs us so badly to connect with it. So if you know of anybody else who would like to take part in building this patchwork quilt of hope, who would like to be part of the greater network of the mycelial structures that we are creating, then do please send them the link to the podcast and to the website. In the meantime, that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.